lens. The night one, we had this conversation, and we asked a simple question. What is truth? What is truth? Is it knowable? Is it worth going on a journey to discover what it could be? Then this morning, we looked at the idea of if, if we really believe as Christians that there is a truth, then where do we get our truth from? Because it can't be your opinion and my opinion and what the government says and how we vote or a majority rule. It's got to be based in something that's concrete, unchangeable. And Jesus said, I'll give you something that's concrete and unchangeable. How about an everlasting, immutable God? Jesus says, I am the truth. You see, if truth is based on uh, majority opinion, then majority opinion can change. If truth is based on culture, culture can shift. If truth is based on a person, the immutable God of the universe, nothing ever shifts. He is consistent. He is unchanging. You can know the truth, and the truth can set you free. So we zoom in on Jesus. And that the, the question right there is really important, and, and the, the answer to that is, is it's of the highest degree. It's of the highest caliber. Here's what you got to answer for yourself. The stories of Jesus will never, ever let the common man, if you read it, if you're intelligent and you read the text, you could never come to the conclusion, which I would say the majority of us, especially junior hires in postmodern America, have come to. If I said, who is Jesus to you? You'd be like, oh, he's great. He's nice. He's kind. He seemed to be a pretty cool guy. He, uh, he seemed to be really into helping like poor people. That was sweet. Uh, he seemed to be into like helping um, people who couldn't walk. They could walk then. That seems pretty nice. And then he said, okay, now how is your life different because of it? And you're like, whoa. I don't know that that needs to be the next question, right? That's, that's a big question. Can I, just, can I just vote? Like if I got a Scantron test or if I took some kind of exam and the questions were how nice of a guy was Jesus on a scale of 1 to 10, can I just vote 10 and I'm good? And what we say is, well, I'm not against Jesus, right? I'm not against him. I'm not like a militant atheist. I'm not like, Jesus, he's the worst. I hate him. You're, right? You're like, I'm not one of those guys. And so our attitude toward Jesus is like, I think I'm good. I'm not one of those radicals who like follows Jesus, like does everything he says, or believes that every word that he spoke we should follow. I mean, there's modern culture to consider. We've got things that he said that we might need to throw away, some things that I like that, I could, that we should keep, but... All in all, can I just be like Switzerland, you know? Switzerland's like the, the neutral capital of the world, right? I'm not entering the war, which means I don't fight for you, but I also don't fight against you. I'm just kind of this third party. Listen, and, and I tell you this because I love you, and it's, it's, for a lot of us, it's going to offend our senses, and I need you to listen, I need you to zoom in on what we're talking about, okay? Listen. You have two options, reasonable options on what you can do with Jesus. Two. Not three, not four, not five. You have two. You can either say he was a liar and a psychopath, and we should have killed him sooner. And I'm sick and tired of the fact that his message made it out of the first century. Because do you know how many people have been killed for the message that Jesus thought that he was God? Listen, if you don't think that Jesus was God, you can't think he was a good person. Because the core of Jesus' message was that he claimed to be the God of the universe. Do nice people trick generations and generations of people to their death, to their beheading, to their rejection, to their humiliation, to the 
mass murder and the genocide of Christians around the world for centuries? Would a good guy lead that many people to their destruction? Can you really call someone just a good guy if their central message has killed more people than you could shake your fist at? You can't call him just a nice guy. If you go that route, you would say he's a psychopath. He's a murderer. He is a liar. and He's a lunatic. We should have killed him sooner. He is as bad as a demon. He's the worst thing ever. Or you've got another option. Jesus hasn't tricked anyone. Jesus is who he said he was. The God of the universe in human form came to take on your and my sin, pinned it to a tree, died on Calvary, went into the tomb, three days, came back to life, claimed to, make the, to have the power to make dead things live again, and now claims that you and all of us who are found in him will never truly experience an eternal death away from him. We can be with him forever. Either that's true, or we write him off as a heretic, and you can't have a third option. Conversely, the way that our stance, our position when it comes to the God of the universe is one of two things. What you believe about Jesus is one of two things. I'm simplifying the truth for you. What you believe about Jesus, there's two camps. He's a liar, get rid of him. He's the God and worship him. If you've taken a third stance, you just haven't read the text properly. If you've taken a third stance, it's, it's a stance of ignorance. It's a stance of not really understanding the Bible. You just haven't read it. You don't have that opportunity to take that third direction. And here's what's nuts. The response to that is that everyone who's ever lived, the book of Romans says, falls into one of two camps too. So we can have one of two views of Jesus. We kill him as a, a mocked murderer, or we crown him as the glorified king. Conversely, the way that we stand in relationship to that God is one of two positions. There's not three. There's not four. The Bible says that we are all born as enemies to God. Okay? So you're born as a baby. It's like, oh, it's adorable. You're a baby. That's great. The Bible says that we are born into iniquity and we are born into sin. We are born as enemies of God. Okay? From my mother's womb, I was born into iniquity, the scriptures tell me. The book of Romans chapter 5 says that we were all by nature in opposition. There's enmity. There's a war that's taking place between mankind, unsaved mankind, and God, which means that everyone who's ever lived falls into one of two camps in relation to this God. We are either currently, as you sit in your chair in this room, you are one of two things in relationship to this God. You are either still an enemy of God, God's wrath being stored up for you on judgment day, enemy, or you're his child. There's once again no third option. Satan loves that we've confused it. And some of us are like, me and God are chill. That's not a thing. Not a, you're not in front of a holy and perfect God. We don't have the opportunity to go, well, I'm just not really against him. I'm not really for him. I choose a third option. The Bible never gives us that permission. Ever. And so tonight we want to look at the truth of Jesus' life and ministry. And what we're going to find is that Jesus, just like we're talking about, constantly calls the people who follow him to make a decision, to make a choice. And when you, when you, when you read the Bible on a, on a surface level, sometimes we miss a little bit of the nuance. But when you dive into it, 
Jesus was remarkably offensive. Do you know how hard, like, if, like, 20 years ago, if you led a mission to, like, crucify Mr. Rogers, remember that guy? He's all, the guy that he's like, won't you be my neighbor? Good dude. Good guy, right? No one's ever like, crucify him, right? <laughs> yeah, put him, put him on a cross. Put nails in his hands. No, we would never do that. It's really hard to crucify Mr. Rogers. But some of us, that's our attitude towards Jesus. He's this old Mr. Rogers character, and then someone was like, let's murder him. And everyone's like, chill, let's do that. That's great. That's not what happened. Let's jump in the text. We want to ask one question right now. Why did this guy get murdered? He got murdered because he does the exact same thing then that he does now. Here's who I am, the full weight of my truth. What do you do with it? John chapter 4. I'm going to kind of run through this section because we are going to end at perhaps maybe the most important verse for me in the past 12 months of my personal life. And I think it really applies to what we're talking about. What is the truth of Jesus' life and ministry? It always begs, it always begets the most important question. What will you do with Jesus? Here's what it says. Uh, John chapter 4. I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to go into, like, story mode, and I'm just going to tell you the stories all the way through chapter 6 until we jump back into the text. Here's what it says. Begin at verse 4. So go to John 4, 4. It says this. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, so it's the heat of the day. Uh, this is in the ancient Near East. It's like 105 degrees, something like that, uh, typically speaking at this part of the day. And this is not normally when, uh, in this culture, it was the woman's job to go and get water. It was, it was, they really kind of sectioned it, men do this, women do this. And it was the women's job to go get water. And they had to hike about a mile and a half to two miles to the well to go get water. So typically, if you were a woman, maybe some of you are, uh, you are a woman, and you think to yourself, when would I most want to hike two miles to go get water? Would it be at noon? No, because it's hot in her, right? We would want to go maybe in the early morning, like when the sun's first, right before the sun comes up, we want to go right when the sun goes down. We don't want to be traveling in the pitch black of night, and we don't want to be traveling before the sun comes up. But in that little dusk dawn area, when there's, you know, the birds start coming out, it's like, that's nice, it's nice and cool outside, that's great. But this woman finds herself traveling in the heat of the day. Why? We're going to find out later. The reason why she's traveling in the middle of the day is because she is rejected by her town. She's an outcast. Dejected, rejected, outsider. No one wants anything to do with her. We're going to find out why. When a Samaritan woman came, oh, man. Modern context, I just said Samaritan woman, no one said anything. No one booed, no one hissed, no one threw anything at me. That's because we're unaware of Samaritans were. See, if I read this in first century Jerusalem, and I was telling you the story of Jesus, and I said, now Jesus went to Samaria and met a Samaritan woman, you would all go, no! Boo! Yeah, boo! Boo! What? Jesus, what are you doing? Rabbis don't go there. Rabbis don't go to Samaria. Rabbis are pure. The Jewish race should remain pure. What are Samaritans? There was a group of people, the, 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 Jewish, 
the, the whole Jewish nation was taken in captivity to Babylon. Rounded them all up. But the Babylonians saw some Jews that they didn't even think were worthy of being slaves. They either had some kind of deformity or they weren't good looking enough or they weren't intelligent enough. And so they said, you know what? Y'all stay here. We're not even going to take you into slavery. So all of a sudden there's this city in Jerusalem of slave rejects who are sitting there going, we weren't even good enough to be slaves. And these Jews are now looking at each other like, what do we do? Well, the surrounding nations would come in and they would plunder Jerusalem because the walls had been knocked down. Jerusalem's army wasn't there, and the only ones there to defend it were people who weren't even good enough to be slaves. So they started going, you know what? Instead of preserving our purity as Jews, when these foreign nations come into plunder, we'll offer ourselves to them, and we will intermarry with these pagan believers who are coming in to steal our stuff so that we can have more money, and we can have kids, and we can do all this stuff. So the people, when the foreign countries would come in, the rejected Jews would intermarry with them and have kids, and the offspring of the pure Jew and the uh, pagan attacking nations, their offspring became a nation called Samaria. So Jews who believed in the purity of their bloodline and not marrying pagans hated Samaritans, okay, because they weren't of pure lineage, and they have worship foreign gods. They tried to set up their new temple in a different place. The Jews hated them. One rabbi once said, and I quote, the best Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. The vitriol and hatred towards Samaritans was at an all-time high, which means if you were a Jew, you stayed away from them. If you were a Jewish rabbi, the religious elite, you wouldn't dare go near their whole city to show how pure you were. And where do we find Jesus. In Samaria, in Samaria, is he talking to a Samaritan? Yes, a Samaritan woman. You guys, this has scandal written all over it. Not only is he talking to a Samaritan woman in Samaria, he meets her at a well. What do we care about wells? In that day and age, wells are where if you were a young man and you were looking for a wife, whose job was it to go and get the water? So if you were a guy, and it was kind of like The Bachelor, you would go stand by the well, and you would wait for the women to come and draw water, and you'd be like, hey, girl, let me get your number, right? It's like, they didn't have numbers. Let me get your address? I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. So there's the, it's, it's actually a really provocative scene that we see, and for a, a people that were listening to the story of when God came to earth and became a man, this is just not the expectation they had for this guy. The expectation that we had for the Messiah when Messiah comes is he was going to sit in the religious elite household. He was going to sit and teach all day. He was not going to ever touch anything dirty. He was not going to associate himself with dumb people or literate people. Or, and then he calls 12 fishermen to be his disciples. Right? Not, they're not all fishermen. But, so he's like, then all of a sudden we see him associating with fishermen and doing things that we didn't expect him to do. And he's going to places we didn't expect him to go. And he goes across from Jerusalem to the Gentile nations of the pagans that are worshiping. He talks to a guy who's been possessed by a demon. And now it couldn't get any lower. He goes to Samaria and he meets with a Samaritan woman at a well. Jesus doesn't care about your expectations of who you think he should be. He just doesn't care. In fact, he makes it a point to listen to who you expect or want him to be. And he goes, boom, knock it over. And he replaces it with himself. Here's who I actually am. And here's Jesus. It's so, it's so good. 
It is so good. Here's what happens. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? In parentheses, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, right? Jesus answered her, if you knew who I was, if you knew the gift of God and who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and I would have given you living water. She responds, but man, you don't have anything to draw with, right? So Jesus is like, if you knew who I was, I would give you mayim hayim. I would give you living water. I would give you water that never runs dry. I have the power to give you water by which you will never thirst again. And she goes, well, then where's your bucket? Right? Jesus is like, homegirl, you're missing the point. I just said, I've got the power to, whatever. Anyway, let's go to the bucket conversation, right? Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, if you drink the water I give you, it will grow inside you to a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15. The woman said to him, sounds great. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So here's the setup. Jesus says, I want to give you something that is going to be in you, a spring of water to eternal life. I want to I give you my spirit. I want you to know who I am. I want you to follow me. I want you to be saved. And not only do I want you to be saved, I want the spring of water inside of you, of my spirit and my life, to well up and to spill onto other people so they might know me too. I don't want to just make you a believer. I want to make you an evangelist. I want you to go and spread the news of what just happened today to you between the two of us at a well in Samaria at noon. So he sets it all up. And then he says this most offensive phrase, verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. And she's, right now she's kind of like, okay, you were kind of freaking me out there for a second. You seemed a little bit powerful, but you've mistaken. She goes, oh, nice try. Uh, maybe you thought you were a prophet, but if you were a real prophet, you would know, I don't even have a husband. Nice try. See you later. She starts to walk away, and Jesus responds by saying this. Oh, that's true. You don't have a husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. So I guess, yeah, what you said is quite true. Hopefully, hopefully you're beginning to realize this should just start tumbling this idea in your head where you go, okay, yeah, uh, maybe people might want to kill this guy, right? Go get your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, that's, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You've had five husbands and you're living with a guy who's not even your husband. So, yeah, I guess you're right. You don't have a husband. But is it, is, it in front of, is, it, is it in public? Is he trying to embarrass her? Is he trying to shame her? No. It's one-on-one -on -one in the middle of nowhere at noon. In the, and he, this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi, comes up to her and he breaks every stereotype. And he says, I want to talk about the thing that you don't want to talk about. It's as if he's saying, I, I think you're used to putting on this front. I think you're used to faking things. He uses this analogy, I think you're used to coming back to the same well over and over again and thinking it's going to satisfy you. For some of us in this room, 
It could be a lot of different things. It could be how popular you are, how many followers you have on Instagram. For some of us, even especially as we get older, it might be the same thing. Well, maybe that was the wrong husband. I'm not fulfilled. Maybe I need, I need more attention from guys, more attention from girls. Maybe, that, maybe, maybe the reason that I had that girlfriend and she didn't feel like she was enough because she was the wrong one. I got to go find the right one. Or, or maybe she, and she wasn't the right one. I got to go find somebody else thinking that if you keep going back to the same well, eventually you're going to get a bucket of water big enough that you go, ah, my spirit is satisfied. And Jesus is going, let me stop your rat race. It'll never work. You can keep coming back to this well every day, friend. You can get 100 million followers on TikTok. You can have 150,000 people watch every dumb dance you do. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. You can, every girl at this camp could think that you're attractive. Every guy at this camp could like you. And you're going to come to one brash realization in your life. Are you ready for it? It's a secret. It won't work. Material things can't satisfy your spiritual emptiness. Jesus says but I can. And all these other men that you've met want you for something different than I want you for. They want you to, to come with them, to, to be with them, to, to lay with them. To, to, they, want all the, they want you to marry them. They want you to, be a tra- they want you to be a trophy. I don't want any of that from you. I want you to know and to worship me. And what you're going to experience in return is a spring of water in you where you will stop going back to the same stinking well And hoping it's going to satisfy and you will for the first time experience total satisfaction of your spirit. Verse 19, she tries to sideswipe him. Okay, I see that you're a prophet. Then she asks him a really important question, a religious question about where she should worship. Should I go to this mountain or that mountain? And Jesus calls her back and says, listen, I'm not here to talk to you about religion. I'm not here to talk to you about where. I'm here to talk to you about the thing you don't want to talk about. I want to talk to you about the thing that you hide. I want, I'm here to talk to you about the brokenness that you feel, the depths of the sin that you've encountered. I want to talk to you about the fact that you don't feel worth anything. And until we talk about that, I don't care about anything else. If we don't deal with your deepest need, I don't want to deal with anything else. It's the same message for us today. We can come into camp, and there's this facade that we put up. And Jesus cuts through it like a hot knife, and he says, I want to talk to you about the thing that you came to camp swearing you don't want to talk about. And the story just keeps going, and the expectations just keep getting more and more crazy. After this, in chapter 5, Jesus goes to this pool at Bethesda, and when he goes there, he sees a man who's been invalid for 38 years. In Hebrew counting, this would be 40, okay, so 40 years, because you've got a little bit of this year and a little bit of that year, you actually add those as years, so you would call that 40 years, if you go back and learn how Hebrew people counted. And so this man has been invalid or lost or alone for 40 years, which is a very significant number in the Hebrew Bible. For 40 years, what happened? The Israelites did what in the wilderness? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years as if God wasn't there, as if he wasn't going to heal, as if he wasn't going to do anything. And this man experiences for 38 years. He sits by this pool and he wants someone to help him. He wants someone to heal him, but he can't. He's alone. The Bible makes it clear this man had no friends. There was this myth that at this pool, there would be this bubbling up every once in a while. And the first person in the water, when it bubbled, would be healed. But he was so invalid, he was so crippled, and he didn't have any friends to help him in the water that for 38 years he just watched and wished someone would throw him in. 
at the exact right time so that he could be healed. So Jesus walks up to him on the Sabbath, which is a day where you weren't allowed to do anything. You couldn't pick something up. You couldn't carry anything. You couldn't do any work. You certainly couldn't heal anyone. And Jesus, on the Sabbath, walks up to this man and he says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. The Pharisees come in and they go, they see the man and they go, whoa, you, you're the guy who sits by the pool every day. What are you doing carrying a mat? Can you believe that? Like the, their sentence, the first sentence out of their mouth was, you're not supposed to carry a mat on the Sabbath. That's how, much they, that's how much they missed the heart of God. They were more concerned about this guy carrying a mat than they were that he was healed. And then he says, this man healed me. And then they get really upset because they go, you can't heal on the Sabbath. And they go to find Jesus. Does Jesus care? No. He's not about their system. And now, not only do we see the Samaritans have this idea of who Messiah is going to be and it's different. Now we see the religious elite. Here's who Messiah is going to be. And he walks in on Sabbath and he goes, you pick up that mat and you walk away. And he gets up and the Pharisees are going, Gee, you're not who we thought you were going to be either. And they begin to plot to kill him. And then chapter 6, here's the, here's the Gentile nations. Thousands of people are gathered. 5,000. That's only counting the men. We're gathered all together. And there's this old proverb since the beginning of Hebrew thought that only God himself can produce food. All food comes from him. Today, if you go to Israel, last time I went to Israel, you go, and there's this rule in Israel. If you walk by a public road or a private road, and you can pick someone's fruit from their tree, you can pick that fruit, and as long as you don't take it with you and you eat it right there, you're allowed to eat anyone's fruit in all of Israel. You want to know why? Because guess whose fruit it is? God's fruit. You go, that's my tree. A Jew will look at you and say, it is not your tree. It is God's tree. You do not make the sun. You did not invent water. You did not create photosynthesis. Not your fruit, not your food. It's God's. You can't go take all their fruit and go sell it somewhere else, but you can stand where you are and grab a pomegranate from someone's tree, break it open, and you are guarded by Jewish law to take that and eat it because only God produces food. So Jesus stands up in the middle of 5,000 people who are hungry. The disciples say, let's go into town and see if we can get enough money to buy food. Jesus says, I don't think so. He grabs this kid's lunchbox with five loaves of bread and two fish. He says a prayer, and then he feeds all 5,000 of them, showing that he himself can produce and multiply food. The only time we've ever seen that before in the Bible is in the Old Testament, where their heroic prophet Moses did the same thing. So Jesus walks in now to these Jews and these Gentiles who are gathered to hear him, and he says, don't you guys, aren't, don't all you guys think that Moses is the best thing ever? You do? Watch this. He produces it himself, and then he hands out 5,000 meals to people, and they start going, hold on. The Bible says that only God can produce food. Only God can, and Jesus is going, that's right. You see, the Samaritans, I didn't, I didn't fit in the Samaritans' box. I didn't fit in the Pharisees' box. And Jews, I don't fit in your box. And the story's not done. It keeps going. Then this group of people surround him and start following him. And they almost liken themselves to be Christ followers. They are like this Christian group. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And they've seen some miraculous things. He claims to be God. He can make, he can make people at the side of a pool stand up and walk again. He can, he can tell this Samaritan woman everything that she's done in her past. He can 
produced 5,000 meals for people out of just the palm of his hand. He can do miraculous things. And then something crazy happens. He starts telling even his followers things that they don't want to hear. He offends the senses of these Jewish believers who almost seem in. They start to follow him. They're actually considered part of his discipleship group. Many, many people begin to follow him because of all these miracles he's done. They, they lean in. This guy might be God. This guy might be the one. He might be Messiah. We might have finally found him. But their expectation is, and if he is, everything he says, I'll agree with. Everything he does, I'll agree with. And everything he doesn't do, I'll agree with. And this was in the back of their mind. You see, they might have thought of him as God, but in reality, he was only allowed to still be God if he did exactly what they would have done if they were God. And for a lot of us, that's how we approach Jesus. We listen to his stories and we read the text, and as soon as he disagrees with us, we go, I don't think that's who God actually is. That's because you're God. In our mind, we think that we are God. So when we read the text, we're just looking for when Jesus agrees with us. And when he doesn't, we go, maybe that's a bad translation. Or I don't like that part of it. Or this is why we don't read the Old Testament. And here's what Jesus says, chapter 6. Verse 53, he's teaching. He's miraculous things. Everyone's leaning in. He says this, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. He's speaking himself. I am the bread of life. Jesus was born in a city called, oh, little town of, in Hebrew, those are two words, Beit Lechem. Beit means house of, Lechem means bread. Jesus is literally born in the house of bread. He's considered the bread of life. And now he says, if you want anything to do with me, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Now, to a Jewish nation who thought that any dead carcass, if you touched it, you were ceremonially unclean and you were rejected from the community, Jesus says, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Now, did Jesus, you don't need to answer this out loud, we all know the answer to it. Was Jesus offering his skin and going, take a bite? No. What he was saying was, if I don't, it, as if, right, when you, when you do eat a meal, it lives inside of you, it gives you nourishment. It's the very wellspring of your soul. If you don't follow and love and trust me like that, if you don't see me as the very bread of life, the nourishment to your soul, the solution to your problems, the, the, the anchor for your sin problem, if I am not something that, imagine, imagine a hungry stomach and how much it desires food, your soul must be similar with me. You must, be, you must understand how broken and wretched and destitute and empty and barren and enslaved you are, that when you see me, you want to ingest me. Your, your soul is so hungry, but you can't get enough of Jesus. And if you were chained up and I was on the other side of the room, you would sprint to me like a little child sprinting to their dad because you knew I am the only solution for the emptiness of your heart. You have to want me and chase me and pursue me like that. Not nominal Christianity. Not only when you feel like it. I must be the satisfaction of your soul. If you eat what this world offers with a little appetizer of me, you will never know me. You must chase me as your only source of nutrition for your soul. 
then you will know what it's like to be part of my kingdom. I must be the only solution to your sin problem. Not pop psychology, not you going on enough mission trips, not you being a better person, not you swearing less. That's not going to work. You must eat my body and drink my flesh, or you have no part with me. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is too hard a teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And they all respond, yes. Verse 66. From this time, many of his followers turned back and no longer followed him. Verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Then Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you alone hold the keys to eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One. You are the Messiah. So listen, Jesus, when it comes to following you, here's what you don't get. You, you, you don't need to ask me, am I going to leave you? Where would I go? Every word out of your mouth, every meditation that you speak, everything that you do, every one that you heal, every, every, every Jewish law that you break, every, every time you turn the system upside down, I'm not going to do anything but worship you for it, knowing that you are good and I am not. You want to know why? Because I don't have another option. I've got a sin problem. I've got death coming, and I've got an eternal damnation waiting for me if, I, if I'm not in you. So whatever you say is gold, and it's good, and I'm in. I'm with you. To whom would I go? On March 24th of last year, my fifth child was born. Her name's Finley. Um, a few days later, my wife started having back pains. And my wife was like a superhero. She gave birth in the corner of her bedroom in 59 minutes. She started five different businesses. She stayed at home. She homeschooled all five of our kids. It was just, she, just like, it's just like, when you meet a superhero, you're like, oh, man. And don't. Showed having back pains. We didn't know what those were. So we went to the ER and she got diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary embolism is a blood clot on your lungs. A blood clot on your lungs, 25% of people who have this condition. The only way they know it is that they experience sudden death. They just all of a sudden die. Because the blood clot moves from your lungs into your heart. It stops your heart from beating and it kills you. And you don't even know it's coming. If you're lucky, or so we thought, you feel something and it hurts. And so you can get taken care of. So we go to the hospital. The doctor diagnoses her. She gets put on blood thinners. The next night we're going to sleep. And my wife wakes me up at like midnight. And she says, Christopher, I'm dying. And I'm like, how would you even know, like, what that feels like, you know? Like, how, do you, how would you know that, that you're dying? And she says, I want to wake up the kids, and I want to say goodbye to them. She goes, I feel my heart giving out, and it's, it's over. I need, I need to wake them up. And so I'm like, just, okay, hold on, right? And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm just trying to wake up. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I don't think it's the best idea to wake up all the kids and tell them that you're dying because I'm not quite sure what. So I call an ambulance. I call the ER. I call my personal doctor. I call just everyone, like, someone help. Someone help. I don't know what's going on. And um, 
So we go to the emergency room, and she gets um, diagnosed with a, a certain, it's called a cardiac infarcture, which means that there's a certain part of your heart that doesn't get enough blood. And because of that, it feels like an arrhythmia, and your heart can feel like it's palpitating. And it was really nothing to worry about. It was going to restore itself over time. But the next night when we went, when we went to go to sleep, um, my wife was so scared that the same event was going to happen or that she was going to die in the middle of the night. And, and it was like our life was complete. We had our fifth kid. We had our life ahead of us. Everything was perfect. And so she thought to herself, man, if I go to sleep and I die, I'm going to lose everything. And so she just didn't go to sleep that night. And it wasn't a big deal, except she didn't sleep then for 10 nights in a row. And if you, if you start to Google what happens if someone doesn't sleep for a night, it can get weird, right? Some, maybe even some hallucinations. Three nights gets even weirder. Uh, 10 nights, the doctors started looking at her and saying, we, we just don't know what to do for you and with you anymore. Her brain had started to rewire itself. The synapses and the neuroplasticity of their brain started to change her very makeup, the cerebral neurons and the connections in her brain. So she started to think differently. She, on day seven, she started having suicidal ideation. On, on day eight, she stopped understanding who she was. On day nine, she started participating in erratic behavior. And she got diagnosed with schizophrenia, multiple personalities all of a sudden because she didn't sleep. And, and I went from having this heroic, superhero, profound, most beautiful, courageous, powerful woman of God that you could ever imagine into I sat front row to someone's deep descent into mental illness. And I just remember thinking to God, like, what in the heck? Like, what are you doing? As I felt myself like aligning with the Samaritan woman, I felt myself aligning with the Jews, I felt myself aligning with the Gentiles, I felt myself aligning with the Pharisees, like putting God on trial and going like, what are you doing? Aren't you the great physician? Like, do, like, do something. It was horrific. It's the scariest thing I could ever imagine. So finally, like, what are we going to do? And so we take her to this brainwave optimization place, which is supposed to, it measures your trauma. The doctors say, if you don't sleep for 10 nights, it's like getting in multiple really bad car accidents back to back to back. It creates trauma on your brain, and, and our brain's trauma response is a lot of different things, which can be suicidal ideation. It can be multiple personalities. It can be neurotic behavior. It can be schizophrenia, and, it, and it's almost certainly uh, psychopathy or psychopathy, and you just stop acting like whoever you used to act like. My wife had no history with mental illness. She had never experienced anxiety or depression or anything. She nothing, and all of a sudden she found herself in a mental health institution. I drove her down to San Diego, and she's sitting in this thing, and they're trying to get her to sleep. They finally give her an injection on night ten, where she goes to sleep. And when I went to visit her the next day, and took that hour drive down, and picked up Rubio's on the way, I looked at her in the face, and it just wasn't her anymore. Like something was fundamentally different. And I just, I just remember thinking, like, is this ever going to get better? Like, is this ever going to get fixed? Like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Do something. Intervene. Like, if the promises of Scripture seem simple, the Scripture, Jesus says, how much better is God than a father? And if, would any father, if their son asked for bread, give him a snake instead? Therefore, how much better will the gifts that God give you be than to ask God for bread and give you a snake? I'm like, Jesus, I'm asking you to heal my wife. Just fix her brain, you know. Do something. At the trauma center, they measured the trauma line of her brain. Our trauma line, you and I, is probably around a two or a three. Someone who comes home from Iraq measures about a 31, and she, reg she registered a 64, which means she constantly lived like she was in a foxhole in Iraq getting shot at, and she did not know who she was. She did not know who I was. She didn't understand anything. She would have these moments of clarity, and it was really incredible how she would come back and come to her senses and stuff, but for a lot of the times, my wife was just gone. The doctor said, here's what you need to do. You need to go back to normalcy. 
You need to go back to doing something. You need to avoid trauma. Trauma is the problem. Get her away from trauma. Which when you have five kids, like, a lot of your days are just traumatic. Like, they're hard and they're difficult. And kids get hurt. And so I go up to, I go up to teach at Hume Lake. It's July 14th or 15th. And I'm, I'm literally preaching the gospel. And I'm talking about what Jesus has done for us. And I get someone on the side of the stage waving me off. And they're saying, come here, come here, come here. And I'm like, what, what's going on? And I hear on the radio, get Chris Hilkin to the infirmary right away. And so I, I just go like, I, I literally, I was in a golf cart. I jumped out and I sprinted as fast as I could. I'm like, Monica, you're not going fast enough. Like, I'm, I'm out. Like, I, what's going on? And they wouldn't tell me what was going on. And I get there and my son, Leonidas, Leo, like we call him, is laying there unconscious. He just stopped moving. Stopped showing any signs of life. And my wife's bottle of sleeping medicine was gone. The powerful, intense stuff that they used to finally get her to sleep was gone. And the fireman told Paige and I, if he took that bottle of medicine, there's nothing we can do. We're two hours away from the nearest hospital. We can't life flight him out. They said, Hilkin, Hilkin, get in your van. Follow the ambulance down the hill. If we stop, it's because we're trying to resuscitate your son. Stay back. He's gone blue. But look, man, if, if the effects are already setting in, if he's already gone unconscious, there's nothing we can do. Pray. Pray for a miracle. That's all you can do. So we start the path down the hill. I remember just like screaming. I'm like, I'm like in my car, but I'm yelling at God, you know? Like, like threefold. One of them was like, if you're trying to make an example out of me, I'm so freaking done. Like, is this your big plan? Rip the pastor apart? Because we've got a great testimony. Like Job, his life fell apart. Is this like your big plan? If, if this is what it takes to follow you, I don't even know if I want part of it. I'd rather not have a testimony and have my family back than deal with this anymore. I'm not just like, who sings about you being a good father anyway? Who believes that trash? The good gentle king. Are you kidding me? Get down the hill, he gets diagnosed with acute onset cerebralitis. Turns out my son Brady dumped my wife's sleeping medicine down the toilet at the same moment that this really rare disease onset with my son that made him go limp completely. But to my wife, who didn't know that until three days later, she was going to lose her son. And I remember one thing the doctor said, keep her away from trauma. And it's like it would not leave us alone. It's like everywhere we turn, the next day my son's eyes go cross. He gets diagnosed with accommodating osotropia, and they have to do an emergency MRI to figure out if he's got a tumor in his brain, if it's going to take his life. And the next night my daughter Finley, the newborn, has an asthma attack in the middle of the night, and the ambulance is back at our house, and now I'm back in the back of an ambulance taking my newborn to the hospital. Would you just like, leave us alone? I couldn't even keep her away from trauma if I tried. It's like it was seeking us out. It didn't seem like a crazy request for me. It didn't seem like an intense prayer. It didn't seem like, a, a, like an insane thing to ask. Just stop with the hospital visit. Stop with the emergency. Stop with the sirens and the light. Just leave my family alone. We figured out that the only thing that we could probably do was to put her in some kind of long-term inpatient center. There was a center in Arizona. I, I got on the internet, and I, I was just, I was, I was so scared because her, 
suicidal ideation was getting worse and worse, and I, was, I didn't really know what to do, and I knew that I couldn't keep her away from trauma because I can't guarantee what's going to happen, but if we put her in some kind of a long-term facility that can take care of her with doctors on standby and PTSD people who can be professional help with her and she can get on the right medicine, she can do all the, if she can get everything, then maybe she'd be in a state where she'd be able to come back and be my wife again. I remember someone telling me, just make sure the place has insurance. I remember telling them, are you insane? You think I give a rip about insurance right now? You think I care? If someone's willing to give me my, if someone can give me my wife back, I will sell my kidney, I'll sell my house. If my whole family and I are naked on the side of the road, but I get my wife back, I couldn't give a crap about my home or my car or my job or anything. I just want her back. I remember dropping her off in Tucson and thinking this like deep sigh of relief. It was $40,000 for a month. You know how small that number feels when the promise is, you give me 40 k I give you your wife back? I was like, all day. I didn't even know how I was going to pay for it. I literally put her in there going, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I walked away going, God, in the middle of all this trash, you provided this place. In the last minute, we were able to get in. Someone from our church offered their private jet to fly us there. We were able to get there within like 12 hours of her really descending into her psychopathic episode, and so she was there, and I remember just thinking, in the midst of all the turmoil, God is still good. On July 31st of 2021, my wife killed herself in that hospital. So you get the phone call. They just say, Mr. Hilkin, this morning your wife made an attempt on her life and she was successful. I remember thinking, like, did you just tell me my wife's dead? Like, that's my best friend, man. Like, what do you mean? I'm a single dad of five kids? Is that what you just said? I got to call her dad. And explained to him that when he handed her off to me on our wedding day that I failed at my job. And this is what I got to do. I remember being so mad. So mad at God. Just like a deep vitriolic response. Of like, how could you do this? I remember sitting like in a pile of myself in the room and You go to seminary, but like no one teach. how do you tell a seven-year-old kid that their mom simultaneously loves them but then took her own life and they're never going to see her again? And I remember like with just the most intense clarity feeling in that moment, like everything I've ever taught Every stage I've ever stood on, every moment I've ever spoke on suffering or pain or brokenness or misunderstanding or suffering or grief, it was like time. And the question in my heart was, Chris, is this what you believe or is this just what you teach? Like, is this what you're convicted of? Like, is God everything in your life? Or when stuff like this happens, what are you going to do? I just remember it feeling so real. Like, is, is, do I really believe this stuff about God or not? 
Do I actually trust that he is good? Do I actually love him? Do I, does he actually love me? I remember feeling in that moment like this embrace of God. And it wasn't physical, but it, it just felt like I wasn't alone in that room. It, just, it, was, like, it was like Jesus just sat there and we, like, wept alongside of me. And he just like, I felt the strength of a father in my heart with him. But I was so, like, guys, I was so mad. I remember turning on Alexa in our room, and I said, just play worship music, you know, and first song that comes on, the chorus went like this, I throw all my cares before you, my doubts and fears don't scare you, because you're bigger than I thought you were, I've stopped all negotiation with the God of all creation, because you're bigger than I thought you were, and I remember thinking to myself, Chris, do you believe this, or has your whole life been a facade, prepared for a moment like this, where you throw it all away, and I started thinking, I started like walking through the marketplace of ideas of like, what could I do instead? Who am I going to be instead? What am I going to follow instead? And this verse came to my mind. John 6, 67. To whom would I go? I was like empty. I had nothing. I felt scared. I didn't know what life was going to be like. But I remember thinking, where else would I go? And for the first time in my life, it was just me and Jesus. That's all I had. I didn't have promise of a future. I didn't have anything else. I had one thing, that God was there. And this, in a strange, crazy way, it was the most sufficient, complete feeling I've ever had in my life. It's been nothing but surrender since then. It's been nothing but like, God, whatever you want to do with me, just do it. I'm not afraid of anything. Like, once you lose your beloved, the whole world, whatever it throws at you, is like, come on, man, bring it on, you know? Like, for me, I feel like, Paul, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you're going to kill me, I'll go see my beloved. I'm going to go dance with Jesus. Do your worst. If you're going to let me live, I'm going to raise these kids to know Jesus. I'm going to preach the gospel until the day that I die. You make your choice. Like, Satan, have your way. Because whatever you do, you're not going to like what I accomplish. Because you either put me in the presence of Jesus or you let me sit here and I preach until I'm dead. And those are your two options because you will not win this. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I have no one else to go to. I just found myself in the middle of all of those different groups of people going, you're not the God that I thought you were. But then what do you do with it? Then what? If the God of my own invention, if the God of my mind was a God who would never let someone experience mental illness, who would never allow someone's wife to die, who would never let someone commit suicide, who would never ever do this, if this was the God of, in my mind, it was a God of my own creation, you know, I thought to myself, Jesus, who was God himself and it was perfect, came, he was rejected, humiliated, betrayed, spit on, re stripped naked, nailed to a cross, suffered and died with a crown of thorns pressed on his head, that is what happened to the perfect man. Why do I really expect that my life is going to be better than that? If I follow Jesus, why do I think my life's going to be any better than that? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is not a story of some dude of heroic faith. I'll tell you what, I'm a, I'm a walking dumpster fire. I don't have some great faith. I have just enough faith that I, can, that I take one step forward like a terrified man walking on a wide bridge in the Grand Canyon who's terrified of heights, one step in front of the other, following Jesus one day at a time. And I'll tell you what, some people walk around with me with a lot more faith than I do, but I really do believe that faith is just trusting God enough to do what he said he's going to do, and that's the kind of faith that I have. It's not anything to write home about. 
I'm not some hero of faith. I'm an idiot. But I'm an idiot who deeply trusts that the words that God says and that the life that he lives and the life that he's called me to is it. And until I close my eyes in death, I'm going to follow him. And I invite you to do the same thing. Because tragedy is going to happen in your life. And, the, and, the, and, and rubber is going to meet the road. And crap is going to hit the fan. And you need to make a decision ahead of time. Do you believe the stories of Jesus? Do you believe the character of Jesus? Or are you like the Pharisees and the Jews and the Gentiles and these other groups of people say, as soon as you do something that I disagree with, you're out. And a new system is in. Or will you, like Peter, stand there and go, you're not going to do things that I like. You're going to say things that I don't. You're, my world's going to come crashing down on me. The sin of this world is going to infiltrate. But Jesus, come hell or high water, where else would I go? This is the Christian faith. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. If you've ever had anyone explain their experience with Jesus as they walk with Jesus, they just haven't experienced Jesus very long yet. It's not a walk. Walking with Jesus is the biggest misnomer. It feels like a dodgeball game where you're the only victim and you get hit and punched and broken and then you're like on this trail and you don't know which way is which most of the time, but you just take one step further closer to what he's called you to do. And it's full of pain and it reeks of abandonment and there's so many other things on the road. And you're like, this is a bleak picture. This is the accurate picture. Do you want to know why? This world sucks. Because it's tainted with sin. It's not the way that God made it. It's not the way that he intended it. But do you want to know where the hope comes from? We serve a resurrected Savior. And because he lives, so does my wife. And because he lives, so will I. And because he lives, if you are in him, so will you too. Jesus' promises that he gives to us are never the comfort, treasures, or principalities of this world. It is always the coming kingdom. And will you finish the race, or will you be sideswiped by pain, relationship, and other things? This is the question of Jesus' ministry. What do you do with Jesus when he disagrees with how you think? What do you do with Jesus when he doesn't live up to protecting you? What do you do with Jesus when he lets you down? Is he still God, or do you take the throne? I hope none of you ever experience the same thing that I went through. I know that some of you in here have experienced crazy, intense, ridiculous things. And it has brought you to a place where you all but can't stand talking about Jesus. But I'll tell you what. In the last 11 months since my wife died, I have found a love for Jesus deeper than I could ever imagine. I found a peace in Christ that is deeper than I ever had before. A comfort, a lack of fear that I never experienced previously. Because for the first time in my life, I'm actually surrendered. Because I've got nothing else. And I want you to know him. It's important for me that you know him. I'll tell you how hard it is to follow Jesus when your wife commits suicide. I have no clue in the world what anyone does who goes through something like this if they don't have Jesus in their life. I have no clue. But I still have hope. I still know how the, the game ends. I know what the score is going to read after the fourth quarter. Jesus wins, and I'm his son. I get to win too. What do you do when the Jesus you thought isn't the God that's there? Do you still follow him or do you throw him away? Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we examine your life time after time, it's like you're, it's like you're preparing us for the life that we're going to live. 
where we think you're going to turn left and you turn right, where we think you're going to do this and you do that, where we think you go up and you go down, where we think you're going to say something kind and gentle, but instead you respond with, if you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And Jesus, the called response of all of us who sit here today is simple. What are you going to do? Are you going to walk away? Or are we, like Peter, going to stand in the middle of that and say, to whom would I go? You alone hold the keys to eternal life. Jesus, there's times in our life where we're going to question and we're going to be confused and we're going to be hurt and we're going to go through pain and brokenness and suffering. Would you instill in us your spirit, which is not of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-control? Would you give us just enough faith to continue to walk to you even when the fire consumes us and the world crashes all around us and the mountains are thrown into the sea? Would we still look, and look up and know that you are God and you are good despite what my circumstances say? Would you instill in us deeper the truth of your life and ministry here on earth? We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.